0: Before we open God's word together, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, though we be few in number here this morning, we know that thy word promises that where two or three are gathered in thy name, that thou art there. And so a congregation can even be much smaller than this, Heavenly Father, and yet thy word should go forth. And so as we prepare our hearts now to look into thy word, we ask for thy presence to be with us, that we would understand and receive the teaching from Thy Word, Heavenly Father, and that Thou wouldst be glorified in our gathering together around it. We ask for a blessing on those that are ill, those that are uh, suffering with chronic conditions and have uh, difficulties and pain. Heavenly Father, be Thou their relief and comfort and provide for them exactly what they need. We'd ask for healing for each one, Heavenly Father, but we know that Thy will may be different than ours, and so we humbly, humbly submit ourselves Unto thee, knowing that thou wilt do what is best uh, for all concerned and that thou wilt provide as a loving Father in heaven can. Dear Lord, be with us now when we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a particular uh, passage in mind that I'd like to meditate on this morning, and it's found in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 18, the 18th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. It's a fairly lengthy chapter, but it all flows, and so I'd like to read the entire thing. Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of israel neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife neither has come near a menstruous woman and hath not oppressed any but hath restored to the debtor his pledge hath spoiled none by violence hath given his bread to the hungry and hath covered the naked with a garment he that hath not given forth upon usury neither hath taken any increase that that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity hath executed true judgment between man and man hath walked in my statutes and hath kept my judgments to deal truly, he is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord God. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten upon the mountains, hath defiled his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath lifted up his eyes to the idols, hath committed abomination, hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die." his blood shall be upon him. Now lo, if he beget a son that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done and considereth and doeth not such like that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry and hath covered the naked with a garment, that hath taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed and spoiled his brother by violence and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet ye say, why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live." Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned." In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. I've read the entire chapter. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we kneel before thee now this morning, we thank thee for this opportunity we have to gather around thy word. We're so thankful that we have a good God whom we serve, not a capricious God, not one who easily changes his mind back and forth, who changes the rules on us, but one who has stated things clearly for us in thy word, one who has decreed that everyone who will turn from wickedness shall live. What a blessing, Heavenly Father, to know that we have a God who is so dependable, who is so just, who is so good. Heavenly Father, we pray that the hearts of all those who are gathered here this morning would be opened unto thee, that they would see their state and would consider that indeed God's ways are just, that there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning as thy word says, but thy promises are both yea and amen. Heavenly Father, we live in a confusing world where definitions and what is right constantly change. And we see the confusion that results. How foolish, Heavenly Father, when men and women abandon the the absolute standards of thy word. With no fixed reference point, they they meander and drift from one foolishness to another. Even satire loses its bite with such, with such behavior because people cannot even see the foolishness of what they are doing. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for thy Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to show us not only the way, but the Father. that came to show us that none of us need die in our sins, that the price has been paid and the way open that all can return to thee. Heavenly Father, what a blessing that Thou hast granted unto us, both Thy Word and this Church, that we have other believers that have gathered together around this Word this morning, and that together we can look into these things and remind one another where we may forget, or we may see th- something uh, improperly or unclearly. What a blessing it is to have this fellowship, and Heavenly Father, we ask for thy blessing upon us here even though we'd be few in number but we would pray heavenly father that Thou wouldst prosper our church that we would grow both in faith and in works toward thee that our love for one another would would grow warmer not colder and that more would be drawn to that flickering f- flame of the the love of god that is shed abroad in our hearts heavenly father we want to ask a blessing on all those who have gathered in richmond hill today for the special program there We pray that thy name would be glorified, and for those perhaps that are hearing thy word uh, for the first time, maybe, that have come at the invitation of friends, that their hearts would be touched, not just by what they hear in music and song, but what they hear from the pulpit, from from the word of God, and also what they witness in the lives of believers and friends of the truth. Be with us now, Heavenly Father. Grant us uh, clarity of mind to understand thy word and thy heart, and help us to leave from here changed by what we have heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason that I selected this chapter is that <clears throat> I find it's a logical continuation and I guess the theme that I've been preaching on from the pulpit about the, narrow, the straight gate and the narrow way. And, of course, then, by contrast, the the wide gate and the broad way. And they can be simplified uh, into the descriptions of, of the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. Those are basically the only two choices. Ezekiel lays out in a very straightforward way the way God thinks about both righteousness and wickedness. And I think anyone who would read this chapter, even if you were totally unfamiliar with the context, uh, even with this book, that you would say, yes, God's ways as he describes them are right. No one should be punished for the mistakes of someone else. And of course, the other side of that is that no one should really benefit from the righteousness of somebody else if they themselves are wicked. What would we think of an earthly judge who <clears throat> would look at the person in their courtroom who'd done something wicked but had good exemplary parents and say, "Well we're going to let this we're going to let this person off without a sentence because his parents are good people." We'd say that's an unjust judge in the same way that we would say, Uh, someone who was good and and, and right and had done the right thing and been wrongly accused, if we look at his parents who were really bad and say, well, because he's got bad parents, he must be guilty as well. You see, the children of Israel had been saying, we're being punished for the mistakes of our fathers. Our fathers ate sour grapes and it's the children that are suffering. Their teeth are set on edge. You know, when you eat something really sour, and kind of sets your teeth on edge. And God says, you won't be able to use this proverb anymore. You see, what had happened was they were confusing <clears throat> the the unrighteousness and I'll use that in quotes of God with his mercy God had been long suffering with their fathers and had not punished them according to what they deserved he was giving them space for repentance but judgment always comes and the children of Israel were seeing the fruit of unrighteousness and they were confusing God's mercy on their fathers with unrighteousness on the part of God because he hadn't done anything to their fathers and they were seeing the bad effects in their generation they thought God was unrighteous when actually God was being patient more than what they deserved and so God now sets the record straight through the prophet Ezekiel HE SAYS, BEHOLD, ALL SOULS ARE MINE. NO ONE IS ABLE TO RETAIN THEIR their EARTHLY LIFE FOR ONE MOMENT LONGER THAN GOD DECREES. I WAS RECENTLY IN uh, THE NEW HOSPITAL THAT'S ON HIGHWAY 400 THERE, AND IT'S BEAUTIFUL. EVERYTHING'S SHINY AND CLEAN AND NEW AND FRESH. All color coordinated, big touch screens, everything impeccably done, as you would expect in a modern new hospital. But when God decrees that someone leaves this earth, there's nothing in that hospital to stop it. We may think that we can prolong things a little bit, but ultimately, God is the one who has both given the breath of life and will one day take it again he said we will return to dust one day and so will it be for each one of us barring the Lord's return but as God holds each breath in his hand he also is the ultimate judge and he does not change his standards for anyone God is holy but he's also good. And his goodness prevents unrighteousness. It's married to his holiness. Therefore, he says, when someone does that which is right, God allows life to continue. That's a general principle in Scripture. Do what is good and live. If you do wickedness, you will die. That's how God operates. It's a very simple equation. And he lists off many of the things that the children of Israel had done that were wrong. Eaten upon the mountains, that simply means they were sacrificing things to idols up in the high places. <clears throat> they were committing adultery. They were being unclean according to God's law. They were oppressing those that were, were poor and needy. They were not being charitable with their neighbors. They were even taking usury, charging interest for those that had a hard time to repay it instead of lending freely to their brethren as the law commanded. Their judgments that they were rendering were unfair. They were taking bribes to do this. All of this was contrary to God's word. In the Old Testament, through the prophet Moses, god gave the law to the children of israel and in its simplest form it was simply to teach the children of israel what was clean and what was unclean what was holy and what was unholy and everything could be divided into those two things god is always consistent and he continued to act in a consistent way why is that to us, or to God, we are a, a moral situation. When we, by, by nature of our free choice, our free will that he gave our first parents, when he allowed them to take from any tree of the garden, but he prohibited them to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had free will. They alone, maybe except for the angels, had the ability to choose when it came to the will of God. And so by virtue of that choice, we can make decisions that are moral. We can decide to do good or we can decide to do evil. God has allowed us that autonomy, that ability to choose. But there is a consequence for our choices. There's a saying which is interesting and it can be applied to every field of human endeavor. We can ignore reality, but we cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. For one who is sick and denies that they are sick, they can ignore that reality until that sickness lays them low. They can't ignore the consequences of ignoring that reality. For the one who is spending more than he makes... He can pretend for a while that everything's okay and it all looks good until the credit card is declined or the bank balance comes up zero and a check bounces or whatever happens. The consequences of ignoring that reality eventually catch up to the person. And so it is with God. So he laid out his law for the children of Israel and he expected them to live by it. And he did not change the terms one of the first things God did with the children of Israel when he took them into the promised land is there was two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. One was the mountain of blessing, one was the mountain of cursing. And the children of Israel were split, six tribes and six tribes, and they called back and forth across that valley the, the, the blessings and the curses of the Lord that everyone would know, that everyone would understand the consequences that no one can, could accuse God of not knowing the terms of the deal, as it were. It's interesting to see how God lays this out. He says, you have, you have one who's a, who's a righteous man, who does what is righteous. He's going to live. What happens if he has a son? And that son turns the totally the opposite way and decides to become a wicked man. God says, doesn't matter what his father did, that man dies in his sin. But what if that wicked man now has a son, and that son turns, he sees the the consequences of, of his father's wicked actions, and he turns and says, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do what is right. He shall live, God says. All clear, all fair. So why is it that people, one of the things that people accuse God of is a lack of fairness? It's unfair. God is unfair. You've probably heard that. How can he allow the innocent to suffer? How can he allow someone who's a a good person to our eyes to go through difficulty and pain? Those are complex questions. But hopefully with the Lord's help we can Explore them a little bit this morning. First of all, God was not done with the children of Israel when He spoke these words. He was not done with the human race when He said these things. Remember, Paul tells us that the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Now, how does that work? God showed the children of Israel very clearly that they were to choose what was good, what was holy, what was clean, and that blessing from God would proceed from it. And it did. Whenever they did those things, they were supernaturally blessed. And when they turned from them, they were indeed cursed. So we can see how that works. But that was only the schoolmaster. That was only to teach the children of Israel the idea of holiness and unholiness, that there was a good God who wanted his children, his people, to be holy. Anyone who spent any time under the law would realize, with the Apostle Paul, as he penned in Romans 7, that the law could not make him perfect. There was another law warring in his members, as he says. He explains to those who would read his letter, That he came to the conclusion that there was good, that he admired and respected and loved, but he could not do. And the evil that he knew to be evil, he found himself doing anyway. As the Russian writer Solzhenitsyn wrote, that the line between good and evil does not go between classes and nations. It goes right through the center of every human heart. And anyone who spent time, sincerely spent time, under the law of God, learning what God had to say about what was holy and what was unholy, what was good and what was evil, would soon realize that the law was giving him a standard that he couldn't fulfill. Yes, it was true that he could avoid some of the grosser sins. He could avoid adultery. He could avoid uh, charging usury to his brethren or, or becoming ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. But as Christ showed in the Sermon of the Mount, the one whose heart lusts after a woman, he's already committed adultery in his heart. The one who hates his brother without a cause already has the seeds of murder there. And so it was that those in the Old Testament who were closest to the heart of God realized the importance of the mercy of God. And Now, you may ask then, how can God show mercy on the wicked? How is that possible after what we've just read? Is he really unfair after all? No. No. No, he's not. He's good. As I said before, God looks upon us as a moral situation and and renders judgment according to what he sees. He realized all along that we were infected by this virus called sin, that in the end, our hearts were wicked, could not do the good that he was requiring. And so he did something about it. He sent his son. And through his own inscrutable will, his, his, his mind, which we cannot understand, he stated something new. He said, first of all, in the Old Testament, the soul that does righteousness will live, the soul that does unrighteousness will die. Right? We read that together. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But he made a way. The sinless Lamb of God, the Messiah King of the children of Israel, was going to be the one that would take the penalty For sin and God said whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved in some way that I do not understand but praise God for he is able through the miraculous work of the sacrifice of the Son of God on my behalf in my belief on him to look at me and say The righteousness of Christ is now ascribed to this one, and God continues to be both just and good by doing so. Don't ask me to explain that to you. I can't, but I expect to praise my God for an eternity for that fact. I would even go as far as to say that any man who thinks, presumes that he can explain the mind of God in transferring the righteousness of Christ to me, a sinner, reaches far beyond his abilities. He would be better with Job to say, I lay my hand upon my mouth, for I've answered foolishly. This is the mystery of salvation. To the Greeks, it doesn't make sense. They want to see logic, the requirements of their logic met, everything nicely balancing out, as we would expect in a a mathematical equation. But there's a higher math here that they don't understand For the Jew. The Jew finds it a stumbling block. Why? Because he figures that his good work should amount for something. That his, his points that he scored with God by following the law of God should somehow apply. In that same new hospital, I got on the wrong elevator. It's on the sixth floor. I hit the first. And then I looked up and I saw... Scrolling across the little LED display in the elevator, Sabbath. Sabbath elevator. Well, a Sabbath elevator, the door's always open at every floor, and it only goes down one floor at a time. That a Jew would not have to have to have to work on the Sabbath day by pressing a button to move from floor to floor. He can just simply step on that elevator and wait patiently as it goes floor to floor from the top to the bottom until he gets out. Ridiculous. Like God would even give a care about such a ridiculous display. But this is what happens when men get involved, thinking that they can understand the righteousness of God. No, all of your good works don't count. It's true. It may be righteous when compared with other sinful people. And yes, God wants us to do righteous works. That's what we're saved for. He says we are saved unto good works. But ultimately, the ultimate squaring of accounts that God requires for unholy people to enter into the presence of a holy God requires a holy sacrifice on our behalf. So Christ came, He called Himself the Good Shepherd. And so he was. But John, John Baptist, identified him as the Lamb of God, the shepherd that became a lamb, the spotless lamb that was going to take the place. And that pattern had been set already right from the very beginning. When sin was committed, blood was shed. When the death angel came through the streets of Egypt that night, and the firstborn from Pharaoh to his handmaid died, it was only those that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel that the death angel passed over. And after that, the law came and said when you have a firstborn, you need to redeem that firstborn. That firstborn has to be bought back with a sacrifice. There was a curse on that firstborn of of God, the first Adam. That's why we need the last Adam to pay the price that we could not pay. That God could be both just and good. So knowing all of this, Who will dare say God is unfair? Could he have done anything better? He did not relax his standard by one bit. That standard was so stringent that his son died on that cross between heaven and earth. That's how strict and demanding the standard of God is. But his goodness and his mercy is so great that he says you only need belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens with belief? That's the straight gate. That's the gate that's only wide enough for one, with no extra baggage. But now there's a narrow way. We are saved unto good works. So for one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saved without works. But he is saved unto good works. And the good works better follow. There better be a squaring of accounts down here already, as much as we're able. That's why in this church we require those that are seeking to follow the Lord to go back and to make restitution. To put back what was taken wrongfully. Why? Because that earns salvation? No. No. Because it is a mark that salvation has indeed come. Do you remember what Jesus said to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and says, Lord, if I've taken from any man by false accusation, I'd restore fourfold, and the half of my goods I give to to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come this day to this this house, insomuch that he also is a son of Abraham. What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? One who has faith in the God of God. That justifies. Without works, but the works follow. The works always follow. And where there are no works following, James tells us faith is dead. It didn't exist in the first place. It was a false faith. How perfect. How complete. Can you think of any better way to do things? to satisfy both the justice and the mercy of God? We talk about these attributes as if they exist independently, but we know that God is one. There is no division in him. These things are all part of his character, and so in his own way, he did something so marvelous, so wonderful, that we will praise him for an eternity for it. That's the blessing, that we can come before the God who says these things that we've written and call him Abba, Father, and pray even for our children and for their salvation. Not that we can save them. We know that. But God expects us to pray and he honors those prayers. I don't totally understand that either. There's a lot about God that I don't understand, but that's okay. That just makes him greater. Those things that I don't understand about God make him greater in my estimation. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. There is another falsehood that people like to make about God, to point him out to be some sort of a vindictive monster who enjoys punishing those that disobey him. Nothing could be further than the truth. Christ himself wept over Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest those that are sent to thee, how often would I have gathered thee together as a hen gathers her her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Ye would not. God wanted to. And they would not. Do you see how God respects our choice, our will? I honestly don't know where those who who ascribe to the, or, uh, ascribe to, to the, the fatalism that f- naturally flows out of Reformed theology get their doctrine from. When, when Christ himself says something like that, I wanted to do this and you wouldn't. And then they go and say, well, God just sort of arbitrarily chooses who's saved and who's damned. No. No. He's given us a will. He expects us to use that will. And he weeps when we use that will for evil. But he will not step in and change our will. That's ours. And so the preaching of the cross goes out. To some, it will appear foolish. To some, it will be a moral stumbling block because people would prefer... Uh, why, is, why is Buddhism so popular in the West or the ideas of it? Because karma is such a wonderful uh, idea to make people that are not too bad feel good about themselves. All I have to do is accumulate enough positive points, do enough nice things, pet the stray dog, let someone in front of me in line don't do anything really bad to people, don't do anything that hurts other people, you know, and and I can be uh, reasonably assured that uh, things are going to go okay for me. What's the problem? There is no standard. Everyone thinks that hell should exist for those that are really wicked. But where they disagree is where the cutoff line is. How do you know? We can all agree maybe that a, a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mao, a pick your villain, deserves to be in hell, suffering eternal torment. But not me, and my neighbor down the street, he maybe is a little worse than me, but not him, he's an okay guy. And well, okay, if someone who's does something really bad, yeah, maybe they deserve, but where's the cutoff line? And how can you be so sure you're on the right side of it? Aren't those ways unequal? No. We need a standard. But we also need a merciful God. Because anyone who applies that standard to their own life realizes pretty quickly how imperfect they are. As Paul finishes that discussion in Romans... Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. That's really the solution we need. But unfortunately, so few people want it. May the Lord grant us wisdom to choose what is good, but to realize also that we lack the ability to do it, and so we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the ability will follow. Romans 8 follows Romans 7. You want to read what the Christian life is like when it's lived in proper subjection to God? Read Romans 8. It's a victory march. It's the perfect antidote to the hopelessness that Paul paints in Romans 7. But God never meant for that hopelessness to happen. He always expected men and women to choose life. May the Lord add, whatever was lacking to what was said. I hope and pray that today's message was hopefully clear, that you can see both the goodness and the severity of God, as Scripture says. It needs to be this way. Aside from not understanding how the grace of God works, as I've already mentioned, can you think of any better way for God to both be just and good? To me, free grace has been accorded, O Lord, though I deserved it not. My prideful heart, yet not regarded, this grace surpassing human thought. Now I know this, and joy is mine. My glory is thy grace divine. Thy wrath is what I ought to inherit, yet here I stand in grace with thee. At one with thee, by Jesus' merit, his precious blood hath cleansed me. Whence cometh this? How was it done? By thy free grace, O Lord, alone. No one can steal this grace unbounded. Grace is my glory day by day. On grace alone my faith is founded. Upon this grace alone I pray. Upon this grace I all endure. On it in death my hope is sure. Can you imagine facing the final moments on this earth? with only your good works to recommend you. Will it be enough? Isn't this a better way? Hasn't God in his wisdom made a better way? That in death the Christian can go smilingly on to glory knowing that it's not his good works that saved him in the first place. But it's the grace of God. The grace that is the foundation on which we pray even. to approach God unworthily knowing we're unworthy of his grace and yet to pray anyway because he says he wants us to who has any excuse that is the blessing of God's grace I can find no surer thing to depend on when we face death's door than that Others will seek other ways. God will allow that as well. But God says, choose life. My son gave his life for thee. What hast thou given for me? May the Lord grant his blessing on what we've heard this morning, and may he dismiss us now with his blessing.